Making sure a business thrives is challenging, but sometimes the solution can lie right in the numbers. Uh, specifically, 37,000, 25, and 1. Now, these aren't just figures. They're a gateway to more visibility and decisive control in your business. Let's start with 37,000. That's the amount of businesses who've embraced NetSuite by Oracle, the ultimate cloud financial system revolutionizing accounting, financial management, HR, and beyond. And 25? That's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do everything from accelerating financial closures to slashing operational costs. And every business is unique, making yours the one that matters. NetSuite offers tailored solutions to amplify your key performance indicators, all consolidated within one streamlined platform. Ready to optimize? Download NetSuite's coveted KPI checklist, engineered to elevate your performance consistently, absolutely free. Visit netsuite.com slash cbs now. That's netsuite.com slash cbs. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. For centuries, we've had a simple way of calling out those behaving in a disreputable manner. We've pointed an accusing finger and said, for shame. Fast forward to today, when that accusing finger is likely to be tapping away on a keyboard, almost guaranteeing that act of shaming will be repeated by countless others around the world justified or not. David Pogue will report our cover story. In colonial times, we punished people by humiliating them in public, like this. But thanks to the internet, this is a horrible corporation with horrible values. Public shamings are once again in vogue, and they can destroy lives. They put my kids' uh, elementary school address online. And they're like kindergartners and first graders. So that's when we moved out of the house. Later on Sunday morning, the anonymous online mobs and the lives they destroy. We have questions and answers this morning from Robert Pattinson, an actor first known for his character's peculiar thirst. He looks back and forward with Michelle Miller. Robert Pattinson rose to superstardom as a vampire in the mega-hit Twilight series. My family, we're different from others of our kind. We only hunt animals. Don't be confused. It's just going to make it worse for me. But it's his newest role that has him on edge. My initial instinct is to say, like, oh, you could never do this. This is good. You can't do it. (laughs) The evolution of Robert Pattinson ahead on Sunday morning. There's no denying the folks in one heartland town dream big. And Connor Knighton says we're all invited to see their handiwork. If you're planning a summer road trip to see the world's largest rocking chair, the world's largest mailbox, the world's largest knitting needles, pitchfork, golf tee, and more, you only need to make one stop. Little Casey, Illinois. A small town with a big idea. Later on Sunday morning. Stranger Things is a smash hit TV series with lots of devoted fans and a truckload of Emmy nominations to boot. Mark Strassman will show us why. The supernatural thriller Stranger Things holds a special power over its millions of fans and cast. You love all these guys? Yes. Really? Why? Would you tell me if you didn't love them? You you such a little... (laughs) Or ask Winona Ryder about the show's effect. You can get lucky with certain shows. I mean, it's certainly been unlike anything that I've ever experienced. But the story of this hit series begins with these 33-year-old twins. Later on Sunday morning, casting a spell on the set of Stranger Things. Anthony Mason talks with Francois Gillot about her brush with greatness, her years with Pablo Picasso. Faith Staley tastes her very first freshly shucked oyster. 
Steve Hartman searches for the secret to living happily ever after, and more. You're disgusting, you're ugly, your hair's ugly, your eyes are too far apart, you look like a horse. Next, attackers online. Can you say that to someone? Much less say it to their face. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The words for shame have long been spoken to people accused of offensive behavior. Now, thanks to the Internet, those words can be shared with millions around the world. Our cover story is reported by David Pogue of Yahoo Finance. Last Friday night, Kyle Quinn, an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas, was enjoying a pleasant night out with his wife. We went up to Bentonville, Arkansas. There's a Crystal Bridges Museum. I saw some nice art exhibits with my wife, and we went to dinner up there. I just had a lovely evening. Okay, so what's the first inkling you had that something was amiss? There was a lot of frantic emails uh, from the university trying to reach me, and I thought my weekend was about to be ruined. While Kyle Quinn was at that museum in Arkansas, white supremacists were gathering in Charlottesville, Virginia. And on the internet, outraged onlookers misidentified Quinn as one of the participants. Have you seen the picture of the real guy? Do you think there's a resemblance? Not really. Uh, you know, I understand. I've got a beard. Um, I understand that, that some people could see a resemblance there, but anyone that knows me knew right away that, that that's not me. But people who didn't know Quinn decided that he had to be punished. What sorts of, the, of messages were you getting? Really vulgar messages that you could never air. There were messages coming from my, coming to my email, messages on my work phone, things on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook uh, as well. Can you give me a sample? They were all implying that obviously I was, I was a racist. That was Kyle Quinn's introduction to the modern form of public humiliation known as internet shaming, where online mobs descend upon one person in a wildly out-of-proportion attack. Were these threats to your safety? I mean, death threats? The most troubling thing uh, to, to me and my wife really was someone identified uh, where, we, where we live, our, our home address. Anytime you have an angry mob and someone says, hey, this is where the guy lives, that's a threat in, in, in my book. So we decided to, to head over to a friend's house for the, for the evening. The internet mob was so aggressive that the real man in the photo, Andrew Dodson, came forward, expressing guilt that attacks were directed at Kyle Quinn. I'm certainly an example that, that mistakes can be made. Internet shamings have become sadly routine. Even President Trump joins in. Sometimes the public piles onto someone famous like comedian Kathy Griffin, who posted a gruesome anti-Trump photo. But other times, it's a non-celebrity, like Walter Palmer, a dentist who shot Cecil the Lion in 2015. Or James Damore, the Google employee who was fired after writing that men are more biologically suited to technical jobs than women. It's profoundly traumatizing, and people kill themselves. I mean, I know of four suicides in the last couple of months. John Ronson has written a book about internet shaming. He tells the stories of regular people who become the target of intense internet harassment. It all begins when something you post, intended only for your circle of friends, makes its way to the wider online public. It can just go around the world. Millions of people would know about this human being that nobody had heard of an hour earlier. Well, I'm waiting in line. I'm next to nine. I'm pretty excited about my free water. Which brings us to Adam Smith. Here I go. He became a target in 2012 after he recorded a tense exchange hey, with a cashier at a Tucson Chick-fil-A on his phone. You know why I'm getting the free water, right? I do not. Because Chick-fil-A is a hateful corporation. The plan was to be part of a, a YouTube protest. This is a horrible corporation with horrible values. I never yelled or called her names or anything, but it got a little heated. I hope you have a really nice day. I will. I just did something really good. I feel purposeful. And I thought, yeah, I'll just upload it. The mob soon descended. We received letters that had pictures of people having sex and, and hate and swastikas. And someone mailed feces through the mail. And then uh, it, it got really bad. And they put my kid's uh, elementary school address online. And they're like kindergartners and first graders. So that's when we moved out of the house. 
Smith lost his job as a CFO. He wound up on food stamps and then separated from his wife. I started questioning things that I, I never had questioned in my life, whether or not I should even be alive. I am going to find you and I'm going to rape you and torture you and rip each of your limbs off one by one until you have the most painful death. If you're a woman, though, the abuse can go to a whole new level of viciousness. Can you say that to someone? Much less say it to their face. Kendall Jones was a Texas cheerleader who enjoyed big game hunting with her father. Her hunts were licensed and legal, and big game hunters routinely take trophy pictures like these, but Kendall's photos went viral. You're disgusting, you're ugly, you're fat, your hair is ugly, your eyes are too far apart, you look like a horse. The goal is to destroy the person. John Suler is a clinical psychologist at Ryder University in New Jersey and the author of Psychology of the Digital Age. I asked him how people can treat strangers this way. A lot of this boils down to a lack of empathy for someone online. There's a tendency to see that person not as a real individual, but as an object, as a, as a, as a target. Internet shamings follow patterns. The victim's post or tweet is taken out of context. That was true for Kendall Jones. Someone said I shot a tiger. They don't even have tigers in South Africa. And for Adam Smith. A lot of people didn't know that it was an organized protest. Or people are misidentified, like Kyle Quinn. Were you, in fact, in Charlottesville at all? Nope. The shaming usually dies down after a week or so. But according to John Ronson, for the victim, it's not over quite so soon. A year and a half is when they get a new job, and they're not thinking about it every morning, and they're not waking up in the middle of the night. But even then, a shaming is tied to the victim forever. Their Google search results will always have this transgression at the top. What is the advice you would give to the shamee? I know what it's like to be you. And I'm sorry. Can you say it, it does get better? It can get better if you face what has happened and you really become, come to terms with what happened. You really did get ostracized and publicly humiliated. And it probably wasn't fair. He adds they should remember this. I would tell them that they are deeper than the comments, that they are love, that they don't need to um, question their worthiness. I wondered if there's any hope that the internet might become a kinder place. I wish that I could say that Twitter will be a haven where nothing abusive will ever happen, but we're not always going to get it right. Del Harvey is the vice president of trust and safety at Twitter. In the last few years, she's overseen a range of improvements designed to rein in internet shamings. We now allow you to report multiple tweets at a time. So if you're being actually abused, then it's not sort of this one by one by one by one. Twitter has also tried to make life more difficult for the attackers. The vast majority of sort of the worst of the worst content, it's not 100 people, it's one person who created 100 accounts. Twitter's algorithms shut some of these people down. And the progress isn't just taking place at Twitter. It's a long road to go, and there's still a lot of things that we already know that we want to work on. Are there people in your position then at Facebook and Reddit? Absolutely. And you guys communicate? Absolutely. Clearly, I think this is a demonstration that an online mob that forms is probably not the best way to carry out justice. Kyle Quinn was lucky that his shaming ended quickly. As for Adam Smith, he is happily employed and still married. But even five years later, his internet shaming still haunts him. Emotionally, I'm a very different person today than I was before the protests and before the shaming. I know what it's like to get hurt, and I don't want that to happen to anybody else anymore. Like, we need to stop it. Like, we got to stop it. Ahead, canines of the cosmos. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, August 20th, 1960, 57 years ago today. A date that gives new meaning to the expression, dog days of summer. For that was the day space dogs Belka and Strelka returned alive after orbiting the Earth for a day in a Soviet spacecraft. 
Belka and Strelka were female strays, recruited for space travel on the theory that street dogs were a tougher breed than those pampered house pets. Belka and Strelka had the right stuff all right, becoming the first canine cosmonauts to survive an orbital space flight and clearing the way for Yuri Gagarin to become the first human cosmonaut the following April. Belka and Strelka never left Earth again. Strelka famously went on to give birth to a litter of puppies, one of whom was given to First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy as a goodwill gift. When that dog gave birth, President Kennedy playfully labeled her offspring Pupniks. Russia honors the memory of Belka and Strelka to this day. Congratulations, Space Dogs. The animated movie feature Space Dogs, released in 2010, tells their story. And the real Belka and Strelka are still on view, stuffed, alas, beside their space capsule at the Memorial Museum of Cosmonautics in Moscow. Ahead, remembering Dick Gregory. Here is Dick Gregory. It happened this past week. The passing of comic trailblazer and civil rights activist Dick Gregory. I can say thank you very much, and when they say this show features living color, you better believe it. <laughs> Gregory first made his name in the 1960s by focusing his wit on something that was no laughing matter, race in America. But there are a lot of good advantages riding in the back of a bus. Next time you get on the bus, you notice where that emergency door is located. Not long ago, he talked with our Erin Moriarty. He told her Jack Parr had him as a guest, but only after Gregory demanded he be invited to sit for a chat. White comics could sit on the couch. A black comic couldn't. Are you a good audience tonight and treat me nice because with President Kennedy's new housing bill, I might be your neighbor now. <laughs> But Gregory wanted more than just a seat at the table. He wanted to change America. I chose to be an agitator. Dick Gregory talked about his role with the late Ed Bradley during a 60 Minutes profile in 1989. The next time you put your underwear in the washing machine, take the agitator out, and all you're going to end up with is some dirty, wet drawers. Soon, stand-up became sit-ins, marches, and voter registration drives. And it goes deeper than the water. But his political views and anti-war hunger strikes cost him. A half century later, he was still saying it as he saw it. If them cops are shooting your children, if they shot dogs like that, white folks would burn the police station down all over the world. Dick Gregory was on the road working last week when he took ill. He died yesterday in Washington. He was 84 years old. Up next. This isn't even world's largest. This is just big. Yeah, right here. It's just a big pencil. Yeah. <laughs> just just a big a... Pencil. Living large. Dream big. That's what we're told. It's a lesson Connor Knighton tells us the folks in one small town have taken to heart. The sign on the outskirts of Casey, Illinois, claims that 3,000 people live here. It's being generous. The latest estimates are actually closer to 2,700. But the population is about the only thing in Casey that's smaller than you'd expect it to be. Oh gosh, it's hard to get the whole thing in. I feel like I gotta go, I gotta go low. Oh, there we go. Casey is home to the world's largest rocking chair and the world's largest pitchfork and the world's largest golf tee. From the largest mailbox in the world, you can look out on a main street that could be in any American small town. Now, you've lived here all your life? All my life, yeah. What was it like when you started to see some of these businesses close down? Uh, it's heartbreaking because when you grow up in a small community, I mean, you know everybody, so you see a, a town just kind of slowly dying off. The factories that once employed workers here have all closed or moved away. They packed up and left for bigger cities, leaving locals like Jim Bolin trying to figure out how to revive the tiny town he loves. 
small towns, we have to try to come up and think outside the box to get people to come to our small communities and, and shop. It all started with this, the world's largest wind chime. Erected in 2011 to drive tourists to Jim's wife's cafe. The wind chime, when I first built it, I said, that's my fishing lure. We cast it out to the interstate and try to reel people into our little small town here to see what we got. <laughs> and are you catching fish? Yes, we're catching fish. Bowen's experiment was such a success, he went on a giant building spree. His family owns a pipeline business, so he had easy access to the raw materials. Did you start to feel like a man on a mission? Yeah. Yeah, uh, and because at this point, I'm thinking, okay, what can we do for our town? So I'm looking at different businesses and trying to find something that would correlate with their business. So, free of charge, he gave the candy shop up the street a whimsical pair of the world's largest wooden shoes. Do people come in just to see the shoes? Yes, they come in to see the shoes, um, and then they find out it's in a candy store, so <laughs> it helps me as well. He built a set of knitting needles to attract visitors to Jeanette Husingay's yarn shop. Is it a challenge to stay in business in a small town like this? Very much, very much. If, if it were not for the gift of these knitting needles, I, I don't think I probably could, could have stayed. Yes, believe it or not, there are people who come just to see the world's largest knitting needles. The previous record holder of the knitting needles. How was there a number two? It just seems like number two would be a normal size knitting needle. Yeah. I'm shocked that there was another one you had to compete with. Yeah, I think it was in Sweden is where it was. When I was doing Bowen meticulously researches his creations and works with the Guinness World Record Organization to get them certified. Along the way, he's built plenty of large items around town that aren't necessarily record holders. This isn't even world's largest. This is just big. Yeah, right just, here. just a big pencil, yeah. <laughs> just, just a big a, pencil. Yeah. The collection of giant objects has put Casey, halfway between St. Louis and Indianapolis, on the map. What's been your favorite so far? Uh, the rocking chair. <laughs> From the rocking chair, you can see the license plates of all the cars that stop by. And so those folks just shouted, they're from Pennsylvania? Yeah, is they're that, from Pennsylvania. Do you yeah. get people from all over? All over. California, Texas. And all these cars have given lifelong resident Jimmy Wilson a sight he thought he'd never see. The idea of a traffic jam in Casey, Illinois, is that a new concept? Oh my gosh, yes it is. And we have road rage now. Because <laughs> we have all these people coming to town and they're going so slow and gawking around that uh, people get upset. That's the kind of problem this town wants to have. And I'm telling you, I can't believe it. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened here. When the flag goes up on the giant mailbox, it means someone's dropped in another letter. A tourist, most likely, hoping to commemorate their trip. Just to know that people are excited about having a postmark from Casey, Illinois <laughs> on their mail, what's that feel like? It's pretty, it's pretty cool to see kids and, and people get excited about something that they're doing in Casey. It's just, uh, it's thrilling. It is, it's a, it's a special. Special feeling, yeah. Big dreams and a bigger heart. <laughs> all in a small town. My family, we're different from others of our kind. We only hunt animals. Still to come, we catch up with actor Robert Pattinson. You were lucky. Very, very, very lucky. But first, are you alive? Strange things are happening. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. And that's just one of the many strange things that occur in the Netflix series, Stranger Things. Its producers and young cast have been gearing up for their second season, while also making time for our Mark Strassman. In 1983, a boy in Indiana disappears. 
Guys, I really think we should turn back. His friends stumble onto a sinister government cover-up. And a creature from another dimension. If that sounds like a nightmare Steven Spielberg dreamed up with Stephen King, well, that's the point. When we hear that kids are watching Stranger Things and getting scared and maybe shielding their eyes like that, to me, is the best thing in the world. 33-year-old twins Matt and Ross Duffer are the creators, writers, and directors of Stranger Things. Their eight-episode first season on Netflix was a phenomenon, scaring up 18 Emmy nominations. It stars Winona Ryder as the mom of the missing boy who loses it. I need you to tell me what to do. What should I do? How do I get to you? How do I find you? What should I do? Things just go south for Joyce pretty fast. <laughs> I think I have one scene where I'm not freaking out. I had to go in some pretty dark places. Probably aged about 10 years, too. <laughs> but um, you just uh, kind of have to go there. This past spring, filming was underway for season two in Atlanta. This uh, is Mike's basement, or I guess the Wheeler family's basement, but mostly it's Mike's cave. Where we met the Duffer brothers. Well, the thing, I mean, this is one of my favorite movies, is the thing. And they have a lot of favorite movies. Much of the series draws from their childhood fascination with the science fiction, horror, and adventure films they watched growing up in North Carolina. And because those movies often talk about yeah. suburban life in the 80s, did yeah. you see your own lives reflected oh, in those yeah. movies? That's why we fell in love with those movies and those stories. It was like because they were telling stories about people who we recognized in a setting that we recognized, oftentimes about kids that felt very much like us and our friends. By age nine, Equipped with a home camcorder, they were making their own movies. We did start making movies in the third grade. I think, uh, they, I mean, they were terrible. Goblins. <laughs> it was um, an adaptation of a card game called Magic the Gathering. It was a really nerdy, like, fantasy stuff. But it's basically Magic just us, like, beating each other up with plastic swords. And we just sort of kept teaching ourselves, and it got a little bit better and a little bit better over time better enough that these film geeks evoke not just nostalgia, but deja vu in Stranger Things. Just compare scenes from the show to their inspirations. E.T., The Shining, Stand By Me. Many of those movies became classics in part because their hearts beat with kids and friendships that seemed believable, relatable, and timeless. Stranger Things has that too. The way that we looked at about it, with like a thousand or so auditions. There's nothing more um, grating than a, a bad child performance. <laughs> it's just the worst. The Duffers cast four boys. Told you. Caleb McLaughlin, Noah Schnapp, Finn Wolfhard, and 14-year-old Gaten Matarazzo, who has a rare genetic disorder. The Duffers wrote it into his character. I told you a million times, my teeth are coming in. It's called cleidocranial dysplasia. I saw you a million times. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, the cranial dysplasia. Talk to me about what uh, this was. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> they're out. When you're born with um, cranial dysplasia, I have extra teeth that shouldn't be there, and they look like this because there's just problems and they don't grow in properly because of the way my skull is shaped. So when you went for jobs, other acting mm -hmm. jobs, did was that an issue? Did it was actually. And I would go in for like commercial auditions. They would say to me, they said, "Hey, you're a good kid, but." Um, you might want to get your teeth fixed. The breakout star may be 13-year-old Millie Bobby Brown. No! The British actress plays a character known simply as Eleven. Her telekinetic powers do most of the talking for her. You know those power lines? Power lines? Yeah, the ones behind my house? Yes. She spoke only 246 words throughout the first season but that was enough to win an Emmy nomination. And when you first saw yourself with the short hair and... I loved it. You did? Mm-hmm. Because? Yeah. Because... It's different. It's not like 
every other teenage girl right now. Every teenage girl is usually blonde hair, blue eyes, beautiful, oh my goodness, short skirts, mini skirts, crop tops, yeah, no. <laughs> oh, California. I'm good. <laughs> First of all, I would like a shaved head and some comfy clothes and that'll do me. On the yeah. other hand, I would be uh, blonde hair, blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Ta-da! I, I thought I wasn't allowed to see it. I changed my mind. From new faces to familiar faces like Winona Ryder, the star of Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, it's a role many are calling a comeback. Well, well, I'm here! They start using that word when you're basically in your late 20s. <laughs> I don't know where my boy is. He's gone. I, I understand the debate about roles for women like my age, there are times when it feels like there's a real drought, but um, I do think you can get lucky with certain shows or certain directors, and um, you know, hopefully, hopefully that will keep happening. I, I don't know. <laughs> Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. This trailer for season two of Stranger Things, which debuts in October, already has more than 45 million views online. But don't expect many clues. Are there more monsters out there? There, there's... There are definitely supernatural... <laughs> there's more evil, yes, yes I'll there's... say that. There's a greater evil. This much we do know. Season two will be another love letter to 1980s cinema from two of its biggest fans, brothers who never grew out of their childhood fascination with things that go bump in the night. You guys hear that? Ahead, how I spent my summer vacation. Some people come back from their summer vacation with lots of pictures, adventures, and ideas they've picked up along the way about how they're going to change their lives. That was not my vacation. I spent my vacation out of town at a friendly and familiar place, filling the days with simple pleasures like doing laundry on a breezy day and hanging clothes out to dry in the sun on the line. When laundry isn't an obligation, it's not a chore. In fact, it can be very enjoyable for me. I also spent time reading a big book on a porch swing. It was even satisfying cleaning up after dinner, which my husband cooked. I went to bed real early, looking forward to making coffee and poached eggs in the morning. My only vacation regret, the time I spent on my smartphone. And that's how I spent my summer vacation. Royal Miyagi, Riptide, Saddle Rock. Oysters on the menu, coming right up. Aw, shucks, is one possible response to the offer of a serving of oysters. Longtime fans love them, of course, but oyster novices aren't so sure. With Faith Saley, we're off on an oyster adventure. Blue Points, Beaver Tail, Conway Cup, Putty Hunk, Bob, the Squeedy. Ask Chef Sandy Ingber what's on the menu at the Grand Central Oyster Bar in New York City, and you may be there for a while. Royal Miyagi, Riptide, Saddle Rock, Summerside, Sunset Beach. It wasn't always this way. I started in 1990, and for about the first seven or eight years, it was very difficult to buy a lot of different varieties of oysters. There just weren't any around. In case you didn't know, we are in something of an oyster renaissance. Walk into a restaurant like Brooklyn's Maison Premier, and you can find oysters from hundreds of different places across the country and beyond. Now, if you think all this oyster slurping is nothing but a fad, mm. consider these thoughts from Rowan Jacobson, author of The Essential Oyster. When you pick up an oyster, you're kind of reliving this very early experience of humanity, which is 
eating a raw animal live out of its shell. An oyster is live up to the moment you shuck it, and after you shuck it, it's unclear how dead it is, right? So you're doing something that is definitely not a part of normal, you know, civilized life. And there's an intensity to that experience, you know? It's just like one-on-one, -on -one, you and the oyster, and usually you win, but some, <laughs> occasionally the oyster wins, and you never know, right? So it really is a rush, like, like an adrenaline boost when you eat an oyster. You want to hop aboard? And as more and more Americans it, yeah. experience that rush, oystermen and women can't keep up with demand, and prices are higher than ever. But today's story of the North American oyster doesn't begin in fancy restaurants or in the depths of the oceans, but here, where the water meets the land, at America's oyster farms. I'm looking at a farm. Yeah, this oh. is a farm. There's the buoys out here. The yellow buoys are kind of the corner markers of the, the farm. Skip Bennett has been raising oysters in the brackish waters of Duxbury Bay across from Massachusetts Cape Cod for 20 years, steadily adding new farms to keep up with demand. Since 1995, how much has your business grown? It's grown probably on average about 40% annually. He and his team raised the oysters in their hatchery, then moved them to several different farms in the bay and nearby creek. Because it turns out with oysters, not unlike wine, geography matters. Now, are the oysters from your new farm right here going to taste different than the oysters they, from your original They do. Farm? We're already starting to, you know, taste the oysters, and they've, they've been out here for um, a couple of months, and they, they taste quite different. So. How? It really has to do with the location, and in oyster farming, it's the salinity and the type of plankton or food that's in the water and, you know, the chemistry of the water. Now get this. Oyster farmers never have to feed their livestock. These bivalves consume algae and plankton. They're, in effect, tiny water filters, and so good at it that these oysters can turn murky water clear. Incredibly, a single oyster can filter 20 to 50 gallons of water a day. They are the greenest critter in the ocean. It's almost miraculous. You just put little baby ones in the water, wait two years, you take out big ones, good to go. I mean, they seem like they should be the food of the future. Yeah, and, and you're not the first person to say that. A lot of people are looking at oysters and clams and mussels as a, a really potentially huge source of food for the future. And you might be surprised to learn that we wouldn't even have this bounty of bivalves were it not for the Clean Water Act of 1972. The waters in the northwest, particularly Puget Sound area, are quite a bit cleaner than when I uh, grew up. Uh, there was a, a pulp mill that was still functioning when I was born in the mid-50s, functioned for 30 years in the Basically, the waters here were a dead zone. There wasn't much that grew here. Bill Taylor's family has been raising oysters around Shelton, Washington since the 19th century. Today, just across the bay from the town's closed pulp mill, oystermen work at low tide to harvest Kumamoto oysters, a species native to Japan. We sell around 35 million oysters live each year. That's a lot of oysters. And this is probably the right time to confess that, until shooting the story, your correspondent had never tasted a single one. How would you turn someone who never wants to try an oyster into someone who wants to try one? Well, as long as they're willing to, to just give it a try, then it's, you know, you talk to them about the flavor. And um, to me, it's kind of like the smell of the beach. So if you've ever been at the beach for the whole day, and especially in the afternoon when it starts to cool down, the beach smells really sweet and kind of salty, and you can smell the air. I came, and I smelled the air, and tasted my first oyster. And then we're going straight down the hatch. <laughs> Only for you, I'm telling you. Cheers. Cheers. Ah, oh, wait, this way, right? Okay. And mm -hmm. I take all the liquid and everything mm -hmm. all at once? Okay. Tastes like the ocean. Yeah. I didn't chew it. I'm sorry. That's all right. Baby steps. Your baby steps. Yeah, we're going to work you into this. 
Married 61 years. years. It'll be 59 in December. Next. Soon be 53. Four. 54. Okay. <laughs> Happily 54. ever after. Is there a surefire formula for staying married happily ever after? Steve Hartman is making inquiries. We came to Indiana looking for one of life's most elusive secrets. We'd heard that deep within Knox County, Indiana, back amongst these cornfields, there was a cluster of people who had all unlocked the mystery of a long and happy marriage. Married 61, 61 years. years. It'll be 59 in December. 55 in November. Soon be 53. Four. 54, okay. <laughs> but here's what's even more remarkable. They're all related. Together, the eight Clinkenbeard siblings have amassed nearly half a millennia of marriage, 449 years total. So I figured if anyone had the secret to wedded bliss, it would have to be these couples. Everybody just kind of gather in. So I gathered them for a series of interviews. And here's what I learned. Look right here, big smiles. If you want to stay married forever, women, you need to speak your minds. I could tell when she was ticked. Or not. I usually keep my mouth shut. And men, you need to be deferential. You treat a lady like a lady. Or not. I said I love to fish and I'm not going to change that. Unfortunately, almost everything I got was a contradiction. There is temptation. I never was tempted. Really, the only thing the Clinkenbeards could agree on was what their mother Dorothy taught them and told them repeatedly, that except in very rare circumstances, divorce should not be an option. She, she instilled that in us kids, you know. My mom was pretty stickler about that. When we said, I do, to me that meant however long we lived. It meant suffering through some bumpy times. But the oldest brother, John, says it's well worth it in the end. Well, I've been married 65 years. John sat on the couch alone because his wife Lillian is in the hospital. I don't know how I'd get along without I never got my easy answer to what makes a happy marriage. We love one another, so. But I did get eight solid reasons to never give up looking. I couldn't imagine being life without her. I'm Edward Cullen, you're Bella. Still to come, actor Robert Pattinson, looking good. And later, the painter and his muse. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Actor Robert Pattinson cut his teeth, as it were, on the Twilight series of vampire films. These days, he's deep into a very different sort of role and trading questions and answers with Michelle Miller. I know what you are. Say it out loud. Vampire. If you had to fall in love with a vampire, you could do worse than the one played by Robert Pattinson as Edward Cullen in the mega-hit Twilight series. My family, we're different from others of our kind. We only hunt animals. We learn to control our thirst. Pattinson fought, kissed, and glowered his way to superstardom. And like so many teen idols before him, he's been trying to shake that image ever since. It's not like, oh, I'll, I'll come down from an ivory tower, whatever. Like, I mean, these movies are hard for me to get. And literally, I'm just as much trying to convince people like every single time. And it's not like I'm like Leo or something. So it's tough for you. The only thing that being famous really helps in is, is getting financing if your if your movies uh, uh, you know make a lot of money. And like the movies I do are weird and they don't <laughs> make a lot of money like a lot of the time. So when you came in here, I mean, it's pretty stark. Yeah. Perhaps that's why on a Thursday afternoon in August, we met up with the now 31-year-old actor at of all places 
a jail in Queens, New York. Something happened. My brother's been arrested. He's being held at Rikers Island. I want to get him out tonight. Where he went to do research for his new film, Good Time. Did you actually go inside the cells? Uh, Spend any time in there? Yes, but How I mean, long? well, I tried to get permission to have uh, to stay for like overnight for a few days, but yeah, the prison's commissioner was saying it's too dangerous, even if you're in protective custody. Don't be confused. It's just gonna make it worse for me. How much money can you get right now? If he's all but unrecognizable in the role, that's by design. You're either leeching off mommy, or leeching off welfare, or living off the government in jail. Right. That's you! I think it's so much of life, people are trying to put you in a box and define you all the time, and it's just exciting to have a job where you can, where you're allowed to, to consistently break the walls of the box around you. Yo, my man, turn around! He's all right, we didn't do no, anything. Oh, get back here! That desire to break free is one reason he reached out to brothers Josh and Benny Safdie, hoping to work with them. Are you feeling this? Are you feeling the I'm feeling right now? Yeah, I'm cold. You're cold? Yeah. Let's get to Virginia, man. My initial thought was he's not right for this project we're trying to do. Excuse me. Are you Peter? Yes, I am. We're in the middle of saying hello. Despite their initial misgivings, they discovered, as millions of fans have, there's just something about Robert. So they put their other projects on hold and wrote this film especially for him. I was very aware of, of what Rob was doing with his, you know, his career choices. I thought that his conviction with an, as an actor's purpose wasn't a commercial one. He was searching. Way. He was searching for and something. that was interesting. He was after a greater purpose. When we sat down with Pattinson on the set of the film, he admitted he's still a little ambivalent about his success as an actor. My main thing, which is what I've always had the fear of since I started acting, is that everyone's just going to see through it and just see or just... You're just some kid from London, like, <laughs> basically. And so you always think um, people are just going to uh, see through whatever character you make. Born in London, Robert Douglas Thomas Pattinson is the youngest of three children. His father, Richard, imported vintage cars. His mother, Claire, worked for a modeling agency. Pattinson started acting by accident. One of the plays one year, all the tall people left, and I was the only one tall enough to like play this role. I then ended up getting an agent from that, and uh, kind of spiraled. Like you were lucky, very, very, very lucky. And then you have to kind of you spend the rest of your life sort of trying to come to terms with why you were lucky. <laughs> like, but uh, and I still haven't really figured that out yet. But you know what luck is? What? When preparation meets opportunity. Yeah, I feel like I had it the other way around. I <laughs> the opportunity and then, and then sort of like kind of built up to, you know, just sort of worked for it after the opportunity. The Hogwarts champion, Cedric Diggory. Case in point, after his breakthrough role as the handsome yet doomed Cedric Diggory. Thanks. In 2005's Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. For a moment there, I thought you, you were going to let it get me. Pattinson says he struggled to find work. I'd been living off Harry Potter money for ages. Yeah, I'd, I'd blown all of that. And then, and then didn't realize you had to pay tax at the time. So I was completely broken and got a big tax bill. And my, I always, uh, I loved my agents in America. And so came over and tried to, um, tried to get a job. Hello. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to introduce myself last week. Um, I'm Edward Cullen. You're Bella. The job he got was the role of a lifetime in the Twilight series. You'll always be my Bella. The result? Fame, fortune, and the never-ending glare of the spotlight. His on-screen chemistry turned into an off-screen romance and subsequent breakup with co-star Kristen Stewart in 2013. Every twist and turn played out in the tabloids. Even the future president weighed in with what else? A tweet. 
And that media attention hasn't let up on his latest relationship with British pop star FKA Twigs, despite efforts to keep his personal life off limits. I'm quite an open person. I don't want to be one of those people who's just like, oh, no comment, look, because I just think you just look like an idiot if you're in it. If you're in it. But then the annoying thing happens as well. Then you answer in these kind of vague ways, which kind of create these weird conspiracy theorists and blah, blah. <laughs> I'm literally like, no, you I'm just... You think people I'm, put that much thought into it? The average person would never be aware of it, but it's like, literally, if you come into contact with me, you will touch this demon. <laughs> it's the, I don't know how to deal with it. And so it's kind of... I thought in the way to, to, to kind of cut, to stop feeding it, you just, you try and say, uh, it's like, uh, I don't want to talk about it. And also it kind of makes you feel like that's the only way you can get some kind of strength. Is this the, uh, the way elephants flirt? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't hurt that he took roles in a string of smaller independent films. Don't make me keep saying it, you got to get up out of bed that offered a break from the blockbuster limelight. These days, Pattinson says he gets a kick out of just walking down the street without being mobbed by fans. You realize what makes you comfortable or uncomfortable, and you just kind of stay out of the places that make you uncomfortable. By all measures, Robert Pattinson, a little older, a little wiser, is exactly where he wants to be. If someone says, like, I like you because you did this thing, when it's like, well, I want to do the opposite thing. I want to be able to have the freedom to do something else, mainly because I just, I feel like I don't, I don't fully know myself yet. And so I don't want someone to say, like, well, this is who you are. Well, if you don't know yourself, we'll tell you who you are. Like, I want to kind of remain in that, in that chaos a little bit. Next, the mistress who fought back. Talk about a brush with greatness. When it comes to reminiscing about the past, it's hard to beat the story one very accomplished painter tells Anthony Mason. Francoise Gillot was 22 when she painted this self-portrait in 1944, soon after she'd started a relationship with a much older artist, Pablo Picasso. I think some people might find it intimidating to be working in his shadow. No. You were not intimidated. If you have to be intimidated, then you don't go there. <laughs> Either you have courage or you don't in life. If you have courage, uh, you receive a few bumps here and there. But on the whole, it's more interesting. <laughs> Women, Picasso once said to her, are either goddesses or doormats. Gillot, he learned was no doormat. In French, we'd, we are maybe not very powerful, but we are not stupid. <laughs> She's still showing her work, appearing at an opening in New Orleans last year. She co-authored a recent book called About Women. And an American ballet theater production featured a Gilo painting as its backdrop. Oh, well, you have to renew yourself all the time, you know. <laughs> the Parisian-born artist, who works out of her New York studio, is 95 now. Gillot has been painting for nearly 75 years. What made you start painting? Well, ever since I was a child, I always drew. I don't paint what I look at, but what looks at me. Ah. It means is important for me. This is more recent? Yes, it is a snow. It's, just, it's <laughs> snow. That's very interesting because the snow is my first memory. And I again and again tried to make paintings of the snow and never could. So everything comes, it takes sometimes a lifetime to, <laughs> to get there. <laughs> Your parents wanted you to be a lawyer. Yes, I went to law school for two years, and it has been very helpful to me. It has. Because a painter is a man or a woman who has to do contracts. <laughs> and the dealers are not the most reliable people sometimes. It was in 1943, during the German occupation of Paris, that Gillo met Picasso. She was 21. He was 61. Gillo would later write, it was a catastrophe. I didn't want to avoid. It was a tempting, <laughs> tempting the daredevil in me. Tempting the devil in you. 
While Picasso frequently used her image as inspiration, Gillot continued quietly working herself. I thought, hmm, I come in a very difficult situation. I have to remain alive as I am without annoying him. And what would have annoyed him, do you think? Any show of too much personality. Ah. But you have a lot of personality. Yes, but you can always put it in your pocket. <laughs> so you put your personality in your pocket for yes. him. They'd spend 10 years together and have two children, Claude and Paloma. But then she became the only one of Picasso's women to walk away. When I said, I am here because I love you, but the day when I don't love you, I go. Mm -hmm. Ha, ha, ha. Nobody leaves a man like me. I said, wait and see. What did he say the day you left? The day I left, he said, merde. <laughs> That's the only thing he said. <laughs> Knowing his power in the art world, it had to be difficult on some level leaving. At many levels. Life is not an easy package, you know? Yeah. He burned all the bridges that connected me to the past I had shared with him, Gillot wrote. But in doing so, he forced me to discover myself and survive. Her memoir, Life with Picasso, published in 1964, would become an international bestseller. Picasso fought the release of the book in France, but failed. I went first and then in appeal. So at that time, he called me. He did. And he said, one more time, you win. <laughs> Gillot moved to the U.S. in the 1960s and attracted another giant of the 20th century. She was courted by Dr. Jonas Salk, pioneer of the polio vaccine. He proposed. That, of course, I thought it was absurd. He persisted. But she said she could never spend more than half of the year together. Six months is the most I could tolerate. He agreed. They married in 1970. The strange thing is that he was really true to his word. We were married for 25 years until his death. You know? After some 6,000 paintings and drawings, Francoise Gillot is still at it. Painting is a great job because you never really have to give it up. No, why should I? It, it will give me up, but I won't give it up. <laughs> I don't want to commit suicide, and I, nobody wants to kill me, so what can I do? Coming up... For most of us, tomorrow's eclipse will be a once-in-a-lifetime event. Bill Nye, the science guy. We're just a day away from the greatest show above Earth, which, of course, CBS News will bring you as it happens tomorrow afternoon. Right now, though, thoughts from best-selling author Bill Nye, the science guy. Tomorrow, we will have a chance to experience a total eclipse of the sun. The moon, which itself is probably the product of a four-and-a-half-billion-year-old celestial collision, will pass between us and our life-giving star, the sun. Now, if you're in the path of totality, day will turn to night. The heat of a summer midday will briefly turn cool. Stars, otherwise invisible during the day, will emerge from the darkness. It's a wonderful, awe-inspiring interlude. But be safe. An eclipse can become so fascinating that one can end up staring right at the sun for minutes on end. So as I'm sure you've heard, be sure to wear proper eye protection. Now, this eclipse will pass right over the U.S., but a total solar eclipse can be celebrated by everyone on Earth. Each of us can take a moment to consider the diligence of our ancestors, Copernicus, Newton, and Levitt, who came to understand our solar systems, planets, and moons, who measured the fantastic distances between them and came to know their orbital motions. I hope we all get a chance to see the bright beads of sunlight that appear as the mountains of the moon interrupt sunbeams. When Galileo pointed out that the moon is an imperfect sphere marked by spires and valleys, he was imprisoned. We've come a long way. That we humble humans can understand all of this is remarkable. And despite all the troubles around us today, it fills me with optimism about our species and our future. 
Modern astronomers predict eclipses like this one with an accuracy that no psychic, no faith healer, no tarot card reader can approach. For most of us, tomorrow's eclipse will be a once-in-a-lifetime event. Delight in its beauty, but also appreciate that our science got us here. I hope this brief period reminds us all that we share a common origin among the stars and that we are all citizens of the same planet. Tomorrow, let's celebrate being alive right now in this universe and marvel at humankind's ability to observe this phenomenon and to understand the cosmos and our place within it. Thank you. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.